coming to the Advent wreath and lighting the candles in a room like this uh, seems a little bit more challenging for me because this has been such an intimate moment for us in our worship over these last several Advents when we've been in this room together. The prayers, the the unity, the coming together around the wreath and the lighting of the candles has been a highlight of the Christmas season for me. But this being the second week of Advent and all the challenges that we're facing, I want this to communicate even more clearly to us today what the, the angels actually said on the night that Jesus was born. The angels announced peace on earth. And so as I light the peace candle today, I want to take a moment to remind us of just two things that I believe that we all know to be true about the peace that Jesus brings us. Because I, as many ways in which peace can be proclaimed to us, I think that these two are very important. The first is, is that Jesus brings peace to us personally, like the inside of us, the inner turmoil. And then Jesus also, the second thing, brings peace in our relationships with each other. And when I think about the angel's announcement of peace on earth, and I think about in that the Jewish, the Hebrew word for peace that the shepherds probably heard this word shalom. It is so much deeper than just things being okay or things being dealt with to a manageable level for everyone. This is a true healing. This is a setting things right at a level that would require you and I to take some pause and to actually think about it with great intention right now. And so when we think about the shalom, peace inside of us, that Jesus, the angels were announcing that Jesus was coming to bring peace in us. And Jesus was coming to bring peace to others. Two great reminders for us as we've lit this candle today. So let me just take a moment and pray about those two things. Father, we need your peace in all areas. True shalom. Father, but this morning, and whatever time that my brothers and sisters are watching this video, we desperately need peace inside of us right now. The turmoil, the tension, the frustrations that we're facing daily in our lives right now, we say in the name of Jesus, bring your peace. And in our relationships with one another, Father, we say, would you please bring your peace? We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And we long for true shalom, true peace to be on earth everywhere, in every life and in all circumstances. Amen.
My name is Claire, and today's Old Testament reading will be found in Isaiah, chapter 22, verses 22 through 25. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. He who opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will become a seat of honor for the house of his father. All the glory of his family will hang on him its offspring and offshoots, all its lesser vessels from the bowls to all the jars. In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. The Lord has spoken. God bless the reading of this word. Hello, my name is Joe, and today's New Testament reading will be from Revelations chapter 3, verse 7. To eight. 
To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Amen. Hi, my name is Bobby. Today's reading from the Gospels is from Mark chapter 13, verses 32 to 37. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Hello there, Gallery Church. It's good to be together um, in this format. I know that this is still uh, just not my preference for how we're communicating and going through Advent, but I just say to us, let's keep persevering. In a few minutes, uh, we're going to actually be joining into the proclamation of the great mystery of our faith. We'll come to the Lord's table. Uh, it's been known as the Eucharist, which is basically a Thanksgiving table, like this announcement of the Thanksgiving of Jesus. And so we always end our gatherings or usually end our gatherings around that table. And that's coming in just a few minutes. But I want to remind us of the proclamation we make at the end of that, because that's very Advent. That's this longing, this perseverance, this waiting for the morning. We generally end the Lord's table, and you can say it with me out loud right now, Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ is coming again. That's a way of us summarizing our belief. It's the way of summarizing our faith. It's a way of announcing our hope. That is how we persevere through this life and as we live abundantly or try and attempt to live abundantly with all of the challenges that we're facing, all of the things that are pressing against us. And so last week I talked to us about how we need, into, need to lean into the wisdom of God. So much of our life is challenged by so many things that are basically distortions of the way that God intended things to be. And when we look at Genesis 1 and 2, we begin to see God's intent. And then we begin to see in Genesis 3, all the way through Revelation, until we get to the very end of Revelation, we see how sin has distorted the things that God had made good. And as we look back on Genesis 1 and 2, we can see the wisdom of of God, how God has revealed that to us. And we need to lean into God's wisdom today. But I shared with you these old songs from the fourth through eighth century called O Antiphones. And these songs have these, these, these beautiful poetic waves of bringing the, the announcements, the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament forward into the New Testament, into the understanding that we're no longer wondering who the Messiah is. We know who the Messiah was, and we know the Messiah is returning again, and we know that the fullness of his return is what we're really longing for. And so this week, the O Antiphone is called O Key of David. Listen to this. O Messiah, King of the Jews, you have given us the mysteries of God and taught us the way of your kingdom. When somebody knocks, you give to them freely and without reservation. Come now and free those who are held captive by darkness. What a beautiful, beautiful thing. So what good is a key? 
Keys are very important, especially when you arrive at a door and you don't have the key in order to get in. Have you ever needed to get in somewhere and thought that you or somebody with you had a key and there was no easy solution and you were caught between, do I take a long drive somewhere else to get the key or do I wait patiently for somebody to arrive? And have you ever had to wait at a door and that was the only choice that you had was to sit there or stand there or pace back? and forth because you just didn't have the key to get into a door. Was somewhere around 10 years ago, uh, my whole family was at my brother's house and we were spending the weekend there and my brother's wife had an appointment away from the home and my brother had an appointment away from the home and they were in two separate places and it was my family and my parents with my kids and my brother's kids and, and my brother had this really tricky back door and so the door was set up in the way the lock was, is that you could open it, turn it from the inside, open it and walk out. But yet the door would be locked from the outside. So you hit the door, it would turn and open and you could go out. And then you didn't realize that the door was actually locked. And so one by one, my family has been going in and out of this door over the course of the morning. And eventually we found ourselves in a situation where not just one of us, not just two of us, but seven of us had gotten ourselves locked out of the house onto the back porch. And there was not a door around the house or a window on the first floor that we could get open. And my family with my, with my parents and, and my, niece, my, my nieces and my nephew were stuck on that porch for several hours before my brother actually got word and was able to leave where he was and come and let us in. It was a funny but yet traumatic moment for our family. So many funny stories, ways that that has been told and retold. But there was just this point in time where we were just sitting there knowing we wanted to get in, knowing that the children were young, think hunger, bathrooms, all this kind of stuff was there. And we laughed our way through as much as we could, but there was this tension because we wanted to be in there. And so in the scriptures that we had read, and I'm grateful for this Old Testament, New Testament, and gospel reading for us, great passages for us to meditate on as we step into the second week of Advent. But let me ask a question. What does the key of David mean? When we hear key of David, what is that? And what is a key in, in relation to David, which was a king, mean? Well, let me just say this about a key. A key in the ancient world was very large. It's not like our keys that we can put in our pocket and now we have keyless entry where you can have a phone programmed or a device on you programmed and you just walk up to a door and it senses your presence and unlocks for you. That was definitely not going around at the time of King David or in ancient Israel or even in the first century these keys were usually very large. And another very important fact about keys, they were assigned to a steward. A steward usually was placed in charge of the key, especially for a king. And that key, as we hear it mentioned in the Bible, old and new, was a sign of authority and power. I want you to hear this. When you hear key of David or you hear key in the Bible, you are hearing this, this, this tool that was known for authority and power. It still in many ways has that same kind of tone in our culture today, a set of keys. I can remember when my kids finished elementary school and they were transitioning to middle school. That was about the time that my wife and I thought that our children were now trustworthy with a copy of the key to our house. Do you remember how old you were when you got the first copy of a key to the place where you were living when you were growing up? To us, it was a way of saying to our kids, you have now stepped into an age where you are now trusted with a little bit more authority and a little bit more power. That's, it's that way in a lot of cities, if we think about it. A lot of times when somebody has done something really good for a city, the mayor or the elected officials will gather around them and do what? Give them a key to the city. So much of our way of honoring or showing honor or acknowledging somebody for their power or their authority on many occasions is by giving them a key or a set of keys. 
But that really brings me to a point which I really think is very relevant for our discussion today in the light of our culture, especially here in America. I know many of you are listening from other places around the world, and this may be true of where you're living, but it's definitely true here right now. But have a question. Isn't power the reason for the problems in the world? So if keys represent power, isn't power the problem? We hear a lot about power people that have power, people that don't have power. But I would say, and I believe that yes, there is a power problem in the world today, but it is the misuse of power that's the problem, not power itself. One of our modern ways of solving the power problem, not the power like electricity power, but the power of one person over another is to say no power. Like there's been so much happening in and around different parts of our country right now where people are saying nobody should have power. Nobody should have authority. Nobody should have power over anybody else. And basically what we're saying is nobody gets a set of keys. No doors are locked. Matter of fact, let's just have no doors, no doors at all. No keys. Nobody can be locked in. Nobody can be locked out. Nobody should have a power over somebody else. But I need to say to us as a church. And I believe that there's a biblical proof of this in the passages in Isaiah, Revelation, and Mark that we've had read today, is that leadership matters. People having power and authority does matter. It, it always has, and it always will. And when you look at the, the life that we're now living, and you even get a hint of what the Bible says about the life that is to come, Authority and power matter in this life and they matter in the life to come. So the question that I want us to focus on today as we step into this day of Advent and us pressing through the long darkness that we feel, especially as it relates to power and authority problems in our world today, and, and even in light of the scriptures that we had read, here's my question. What does it look like to be worthy of the power that you've been given? What does it look like for me to, be, to, to live my life worthy of the power that I've been given? I have power that's been given to me. And what does it look like for me to live my life worthy of the power given to me? What does it look like for you to live your life worthy of the power that's been given to you? And just like the answer to wisdom last week, I just want to say to us again today, the answer to that question is simple. And I'm going to build the whole rest of this teaching on this. So I don't want you to tune out here by me giving you the answer. But this answer is Jesus Christ. If we want to know what it looks like for you and I to live worthy of the power that we've been given we have to look at Jesus Christ because worthiness of power and authority looks like Jesus. So the key of David only appears in the Bible twice in the two passages, in two of the three passages that we've read this morning, starting in Isaiah 22. Verse 22 says this, I will place on his shoulders the key to the house of David. How big is that key that they're going to put it on his shoulder? But what, what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. Let me start with a few verses prior because we didn't have time to read all of this chapter. And I want you to gain some understanding because the person in this chapter that had the key the first time used it to build a special tomb for himself, which was a way of showing himself great honor and power and authority. He had this grand home and a grand burial site. And this person had taken the key as a steward. He was a steward of the key and he was using it selfishly for his own story, his own glory. And do we not see how powerful folks do this over and over again, where we maximize our power and authority for our benefit? That's what's happening here in Isaiah 22. But notice God's response wasn't no keys, no doors, nobody gets a key. What he does is he gives that power and authority to another and he takes that key and he places it on the shoulder of someone else. And he says to him, what you open will be open and what you close will be closed. So the question isn't, are there doors and keys? Because that is the truth. And it isn't, is there power and authority? Because there is power and authority. 
The question is, is who is worthy of it? And that is a heavy issue for us to wrestle in today. Because if I make this application good for us as the church, we must realize that we have been given power and authority in the name of Jesus. And are we living our life worthy of it? Now let's transition to Revelations because this weighty moment in Isaiah chapter 22, what I mean by weighty, I know I have a lot of times I talk fast and I sometimes use words or idioms, colloquialisms that don't necessarily go across multiple different cultures. And so let me slow down here just for a minute because the church in Philadelphia that's talked about here in Revelations chapter three gives an answer to the situation that was talked about in Isaiah 22. When it, you talk about a key being taken away from a selfish, power-hungry, authority-hungry, abuse-of-power steward and given to a good steward, we now find the answer in Revelations 3. Talk to, to the church in Philadelphia. Who is worthy of that kind of power? Jesus. I mentioned that once. I'm going to mention it a couple more times. Revelations 3 makes it very clear that, that there needs to be a worthy carrier of the key because other humans constantly exploit one another. But when we have our eyes fixed on Jesus, we see a Jesus who had all power and authority given to him, but he didn't exploit others. He used his power and authority to set people free. But it says here about Jesus shutting and opening doors. So let me say something to some of you that have grown up in church, because what door does Jesus shut? When you hear that, I think for many of us, myself included, like I grew up going to church basically from pre-K, about four or five years of age, all the way through my life until this day in time. And my parents always had me there and we always were in different types of churches. And the image, and let me ask the question, what image does this bring up of your past? And I know we don't have time to really interact or a way in which we can interact in the chat, in the video. But when you think about this, a lot of people, when they hear Jesus has the authority to shut doors, they think of somebody in a pulpit with a Bible beating them over the head, saying that you are condemned to this or you are being judged for that. And like Jesus is shutting and slamming a door in your face. And I want to release us from that today. I don't want the distraction of Jesus locking and unlocking doors for you to feel like you're excluded or you to feel like he's doing that because he hates you or, or that there's a posture against you for failure or keeping you out. Because what does Revelations reveal to us about this authority of Jesus, this power of Jesus? In Revelations, we find that he is the first and the last, that he's the living one, that he's alive and he makes us alive in him. And that Jesus has the key, according to Revelations 3, over death and the grave. He shuts the door on death so that you and I don't have to enter into that door. Death and the grave have been locked by Jesus. Now, a lot of times we get distracted as we turn to Revelation. I think if I was to ask you, what are the first three words? We were to play the game, like some sort of association game where I say Revelation, and then you respond with the first word that comes to mind. I have a feeling that usually within the, probably within the first three words, most of you would probably say something about hell and eternal judgment and fire and all this kind of stuff. And because I think we all have some sort of impression of hell, but I want us to stop here just for a minute. And I don't, don't have time to go through the whole book of Revelation or go through the entire New Testament, but I want to highlight a couple of things that we are going to teach on next year as we prepare for Easter is that the New Testament doesn't use the word hell. There's this Hades, this domain of the dead that's talked about in the New Testament. There is a judgment coming. Let me just say it very clearly, and I'm going to say it again, because I don't want you to think about me saying that the word Hades here, the domain of the dead, and this contrast of hell and what we perceive it to be means that there's some way that we get around judgment. Let me just tell you this. We are all going to stand face to face with Jesus, the true king, all of us, and we will give an account one day. But, but this idea that hell, very real and present, and this place of turmoil right now, people 
burning, like flesh burning, but never decaying, that that is not what we hear in the New Testament. But many of us have that image, like that image is ingrained in us, that thought that many of us maybe even think that theology of a current place of torment, like right now, there are people that are just being tormented in hell. That is not what I have found in the New Testament. The domain of the dead is now this moment of where people can, are, are dead and waiting. But where do we get this image of souls in turmoil? I, I believe that this is this, this to be true, and I would encourage you to look into it in preparation for where we're going to go next year and some of our teachings in February and March. But when we look at the scriptures, we don't find the images of hell that many of us have pictured in our minds. Where do we get it from? Dante. Dante's Inferno, the, the, that medieval art and the things and the images behind what the church was implementing there. And I'm, no, I'm not a great historian, but I love to read church history. And one of the, the writers right now that I'm really enjoying is a writer named Tom Holland. And he talks about how as Christianity was moving around Europe and North Africa, there were things that were happening in those pagan worlds that many of the Christians were actually listening to and hearing and were trying to use some of their terms and their language in order to tell them about Jesus. But the thing that, that got into them that should have been held at a distance was this concept of hell. The word hell actually comes from pagan religions, not out of Christianity. And we think of hell as this current place of turmoil, but that is not what the New Testament tells us. So much of that belief in ideology came out of the going out and telling the world about Jesus, but them taking in some of the theology of all of that. And like I said, we're going to spend some more time on that later. But the book of Revelation says that Jesus has the key to death and the grave. And so, so what do we take away from the book of Revelations? What do we take away from Romans, Revelation chapter 3 in this church in Philadelphia? This is what I think is very important. Make sure that you know the person who holds the key. This is what I want to say to us as a church today. Whatever we might argue and debate about judgment and hell and where dead people are right now, we can have a healthy debate about that. But one thing that the New Testament is very clear on is that you and I must know the one who holds the key because the one who holds the key is the one that holds the key over death and the grave. And that is what we get from Jesus Christ. So what does it look like for Jesus to shut the door on the accuser? This is what I love out of this passage is that he shuts the door on the one that is constantly trying to get us to trip up. So many times we I hear the, the voices in the world telling us things and that accuser that is trying to limit the peace that gets inside of us and the peace in our relationships. Jesus is silencing that accuser because Jesus is the only one worthy of talking to us about our own lives. Think about the story in the New Testament that the gospel share about the woman thrown at Jesus' feet. Jesus looks at her and then looks at the crowd and is like, okay, any of you without sin, throw the first stone. Jesus was the one that was the rightful authority, the one that had the power in that situation. And he did not condemn her. He encouraged her to go and sin no more. But he did not follow the pressure of the crowd because they had no right to judge her. We have no right to do that. Jesus is, is our true advocate. He has silenced the accuser. He has shut the door on that accuser. And what Jesus shuts the door on stays shut because he holds the key to that door. So what door does Jesus open? Listen to this, Revelations 3, verse 7. What door does Jesus open? These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David when he opens Excuse me, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door. I have placed before you an open door, and no one can shut. I know that you have little strength. Advent, <laughs> this 
darkness, this longing, this weakness that we feel longing for the light of morning. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The key in this passage is the key to the house of David. And so what does this mean in Revelations 3? Jesus opens a door that no man can shut. Let me just get with a little distraction because we are getting ready for a prayer week in January as well. And there's times that people will come to this verse and be like, yeah, there's no door that that Jesus can't open. There's no door that is shut in front of us that Jesus can't open. And so many times we'll use this verse out of context, like the promotion at work, the door is shut, but Jesus can open that door. I just want us to stay away from this verse because this verse has nothing to do with our answer of prayer. This verse is not about our worldly success, my material wealth, my jobs, my promotion, the things that will bless me. This job, excuse me, this passage and this verse is about Jesus seeing us and opening a door for us of a life he wants us to step into. And that life in the house of David is the kingdom of God. This door that he's left open for us in Revelation chapter 3, talking to this church in Philadelphia, he's saying to them, the door to the kingdom of God is open to you. And so he's opened it. Nobody can shut it and you can enter into it. All of us, nobody can shut this door to you. You can walk into this door. What we need is what Jesus said in the book of Matthew to seek first the kingdom of God. So we've got to enter that door. We've got to seek first God. And when we get inside of that door, we are opened up to the kingdom of God. And that is what we long for. Because when we step into that open door, into the kingdom of God, we are losing our life. But yet Jesus says you lose it, but yet you get it back and you get it back more abundantly and you get it back more full. When you give up yourself, you get a better verse. You get more of yourself back, not just going from a bad man to a good man. You go from being a sinful human to a son or a daughter of the most high God. It's not just a purifying of ourselves. It is a complete change to who you and I are when we pursue him because we're not pursuing ourselves we're pursuing him and his kingdom because the kingdom of God comes first and so when we enter this door that God has placed for us that Jesus has the key to that he is opened that nobody can shut this key to the kingdom we are then entering into what I believe is basically a rehab of our heart our mind and our soul and our strength this is what needs to happen to us. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I can't say it any better than this passage. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, or let me adjust this passage just for a minute, in view of the door that God has opened up in front of you, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. This is us giving away our life to have the life that God wants us to have back. So do not conform to the pattern of this world, the selfishness, the abuse of power, the abuse of authority. Do away with that. Don't be conformed to that in this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our minds need to be renewed because our minds currently are not wired to think like Jesus. And if we're going to be good stewards of the power and authority that we've been given, our minds need to be reworked like Jesus. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if we step into the mercies of God, we step into this door that's open in front of us. We can then step into that door, get our minds reworked around Jesus, and then we can know how in this life, to live out what is good and perfect in the will of God in this world. Because the reign of God in this world comes first. I was listening to a friend that was talking about uh, how revolutions have been studied in the world and how many in England, when they are asked about the American Revolution. They really don't consider it a revolution. They call it an American rebellion because when we revolted or we rebelled against England as a nation, we didn't kill the king or decapitate the king and take on a new king. Their king was fine and their king and authority was still established 
And so a revolution is the changing of a king to a whole new power. All it was was a group of people that rebelled against the king and established something else new and different. Let me just tell you this. We're not in a rebellion. We're in a revolution. There is a kingdom in this world that Jesus has looked at the king of that kingdom and said, you are now defeated. And my kingdom is now the one that's going to rule and reign on this earth. And we don't serve the king of this world. We serve King Jesus. And this is what the key of David means. The door of the gospel is open. We need, let me just say this, going back to authority and power. We don't need there to be a lack of authority and power. We need authority and power. There's authority and power that's needed in our life. There will be a true king for all of eternity. We need to have trusted men and women that are looking to Jesus and are aligning their hearts, their minds being renewed into the image of Jesus that can lead us through the longing and the waiting for the light of the morning, for the fullness of Jesus, for the announcement and the return of our Lord and our King. We need men and women that don't shun or run away from or denounce any locked doors. They or, or open doors. They say that we need doors. We need authority. We need to know what's right and wrong. We need to know what's true and what's a lie. And we need men and women to step into that. But the only way we're going to do it in a way that's worthy is if we are aligned with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus, like he was last week, was the source of wisdom. And we know wisdom because we know Jesus. You and I know authority and we know power because we know Jesus. No other source is trustworthy. No other source is worthy of that much power than Jesus Christ. So this week, as we step into this second week of Advent, let us not, in our fear of the darkness, push aside all authority and denounce all authority and even in our own lives say, I don't want any of it. Let us step into this gift of God's great mercy and take on the image of Jesus Christ who was worthy. And let's live our lives in the worthy pattern and use as his church in this world, as the people of God, let us live in the power and the glory of God together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I'm just so grateful to be here in your presence. I'm so grateful that we all have access to you, no matter where we are, who we're with, even when we're not with each other, all in one room, Lord. And Lord, we just come to you feeling weary. We're all weary, Lord, of this pandemic, of injustice, of inequities, of other illnesses and threats of illnesses, and um, just so many things, Lord. Things that we don't understand. Things we're just tired of waiting for and waiting on. Um, Lord, it's been a year of waiting and uncertainty. But Lord, no matter what, no matter what we're carrying, no matter our frustrations and impatience, Lord, may our hearts continue to be open to your goodness because you have not made this world and our lives one note. You are the God of nuances. Even in the weight of waiting, Lord, even in its heaviness, you have provided for us. You have given us good things. You have given us each other even when we're apart. Lord, show us how to grieve, to lament, how to celebrate and find joy at the same time. 
Lord, thank you for um, making all things new and making things new through us. Lord, thank you for um, those who have recently brought children into the world or who are going to very soon, people in our church family, Lord. Thank you for um, those of us who have brought new projects into the world, work or otherwise, Lord, for new artistries, for new relationships. Lord, there are new things happening, even when it feels like there's a lot of the same going on and a lot of the same fears. But God, you're not a God of confusion or fear. So please help us as we wait, as we long for healing of our bodies, of our land, of our hearts, We ask for you to lift our spirits, Lord. We ask that you help us to trust in you, to hold steady to your promises, knowing that you haven't forgotten us. Lord, you hear our cries and you hear the things we don't know how to say. You hold nothing of yourself back from us. We get all of you, Lord. And may we be vulnerable enough to give you all of us, all that we are, Lord, all that we carry, all that we struggle with and long for. Thank you for your love. Thank you for watching over us. Thank you for the gift of your son. Thank you for forgiveness. May we cling to hope. Amen. Well, family, here's that minute I was telling us about. We've come back to the table, the Eucharist, this place of great thanksgiving because of the example of Jesus Christ. His body broken, his blood poured out so that you and I could receive his great mercies and then invite other people into that life of great mercy. Jesus has the key. He's sharing that opportunity with us to walk in this. And this table reminds us of the hope the peace and the joy that you and I have in Jesus Christ. And so right now I'd like for you to take a piece of the bread and I would like for you to hold this up just now, just for a moment. I just want to say a prayer over us right now. Father, we come to this table with the bread and with the cup. And we just want to say thank you for this great love. Forgive us of our sins, the ways that we have harmed others and the ways we've harmed ourselves and the ways that we have even betrayed you. Father, forgive us for the things that we've done with evil intent or just we knowingly have made choices, Lord, where we know we've stepped outside of your will and your desire. Father, I also pray that you would forgive us for the places where that we have sinned and we've not even known it. Father, we don't even begin to understand all of the ways in which our lives don't align with you, but we are coming to this table thanking you for your great love, and we're grateful that your spirit isn't done teaching us. We're thankful that your spirit hasn't finished his work in us. Father, we pray for that renewing. Mind, body, soul, strength, Lord. Thank you. Amen. So guys, let's hold the bread up to one another and let us say together, this was his body broken for you. And then take the cup, hold it up to one another. And as you take it, you, as you dip the bread into the cup, say to one another, this was his blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's take this together.
All right, it's time for that proclamation of this great mystery of our faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. Church, as we get ready for our benediction, I just want to remind you guys that things are changing. Please be aware of the announcements that are coming your way. There's been several important ones that we announced, and there will be slides reminding you of those announcements at the end of the benediction. So please stay on a little longer and make note of those announcements and requests of you. But I do need to say to you, church, those of you that are serving our growth community leaders, our deacons, our elders, thank you for the work you're doing. You know our people, you're watching over them. Right now, we need um, to continue to look through our church family for more deacons and elders, people that are qualified for those positions to help us serve and continue to strengthen our ministry inside of our church. So would you please open the app, go to the deacon elder nomination. All the information that you need for doing that is in the app underneath the more tab. Would you take time today before you get busy doing other things and make those nominations? We appreciate that. So here's our benediction. As we go from here today, may we realize that there is a trustworthy steward to the key to God's kingdom. There is a trustworthy steward that can lock doors and unlock doors because that person is Jesus Christ. He is worthy and he has unlocked the door to death in the grave and is asking us to walk into it. And by walking into that, we get the kingdom of God. That is good news. So this week, let's stay focused on the fact that we get that great mercy of God shown to us. And that same invitation is offered to others. Let's invite them into that. May God's grace and peace be with you. Thank you guys so much. the best.